Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Super Mercado Brothers Video Game Music Podcast. Thanks so much for joining us, guys. This is the podcast where we share and discuss the very best in video game music. My name is Carl Brueggemann. And I'm his brother, Will Brueggemann. This is a very exciting episode. It's kind of interesting. Uh, today's topic is Breakdown and Analysis Volume 2. Now, if you've been following our show for a number of years, I imagine that's going to sound confusing to you because you'll be like, where was the first <laughs> it's iteration of Breakdown time. and Analysis? It, it was our 10th episode, actually. So it was about four years ago that's that crazy. we did the first yeah, we had the idea to do this breakdown analysis where we talk about a small number of tracks, tracks that are really important to us and we think some of the best in all of video game music, and really take a lot of time to dissect them and talk about the musical theory behind the pieces and also talk about um, how they're implemented in the games and really just take a lot of time to really get into the nitty-gritty of these pieces. And just like last time, uh, we have our third brother, Marty, to join us today. Thanks for, thanks for joining us, man. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, it does feel like it was quite a while ago when we did our very first breakdown it's analysis. interesting we're in the exact same room with a very <laughs> similar setup. So yeah, this is actually a little bit, because we, we record this podcast typically, you know, other than, you know, when Will's in college and we do it via Skype, we've been recording this podcast at my place for the past however many years. So that means that I've been living here for about four years and I am actually moving soon. So this will be one of the final podcasts we'll record in this place. So kind of sad. Kind of oh, is a little bit sort of bittersweet. Yeah. But this is a perfect episode to do that. Marty, I remember last time we did this, you made a joke about how there was like a lot of food spread out here for you, but uh, I guess that's not the case today. Just Cheez-Its. Yeah. Just, yeah, just um, Jesus. One thing w that I'm excited about, uh, some of you, I think, uh, will be excited today, too, is a lot of times on the podcast, we throw out a lot of these musical terms, or these big words that might not mean much to a lot of you guys. So today will be an opportunity to really explain what some of those terms are and hopefully teach you something about music theory. You know, a lot of you, just because you're a fan of our podcast, that doesn't mean that you really know that much about music theory. I would say the average person probably doesn't really know that much. So it'll, it'll be nice to maybe educate some of you on some of these things we're throwing around. So the format of this episode is going to be kind of fun. Since there's three of us, we're going to be analyzing and breaking down three different classic pieces of video game music. Um, um, and we're all going to sort of have our turn at the piano, sort of sharing our discoveries and um, the research that we did into our each individual tracks. And what's interesting about that is whenever it comes time to, to go to the next track, we actually are going to have to physically stand up and move to another microphone. So that should be fun for you guys auditorily to hear that. Yeah, we should put in some sort of like in you think we should interlude edit, music. Should we edit that out? Or should, we funky just, dunk, 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 should we edit dunk. that out or should we just keep the... I, I think, think it'd we be should fun keep, to keep it and it. just keep add it. like a physical choreography component to every episode. That's, that's <laughs> really cool. Well, you know, I think we should get right into it. So the first piece that uh, we're going to talk about, this is a piece that Marty is um, prepared and, and is presenting today. Uh, Marty, do you want to tell everyone what the first piece of the day is? Sure. What I'm going to be sharing today is, I think, a quintessential piece of video game music. It's the fairy fountain theme, or the fairy theme, which first appeared in Legend of Zelda, A Link to the Past, and was probably made most famous in The Legend of Zelda, Ocarina of Time. Right. Absolutely. Classic track. Well, why don't we start off by playing the actual track, and then we're really going to start uh, breaking it down. Here we go. Here's the fairy fountain theme. Thank you. 
We just heard the Fairy Fountain theme, which was composed by, I think, our favorite video game composer, one of our favorite composers generally, uh, Koji Kondo, who many of us know started the Legend of Zelda franchise with the very first game on the NES. And really, A Link to the Past was a very highly anticipated Zelda title, seen as sort of like a return to form of the original game. And when it came out, it really sort of blew our collective minds at just how vast of a, of a game it was, just in terms of the space of the world, the density of the world and the story. And really, Koji Kondo also just blew us away with the density and quality and beauty of of the music. When you think of the first game, there are really only a handful of pieces. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, he really sort of... Uh, he really sort of set the standard for what Zelda music would become, which is this really rich legacy of music. Yeah, and for me, this particular track in A Link to the Past is really one of the standouts. It's one of the, and I can only imagine at that time hearing this for the first time uh, on that file select screen, just very moving. It's a very moving piece of music. Well, I think this is an example where the simplicity is just so incredible and and so beautiful. And it's the type of thing that I really don't know if another composer would stumble upon it because it takes Koji's right kind of mind to be willing to do something so simple and yet so complex at the same time that I think it's the type of thing that would just elude other composers, but he's able to, you know, discover those gems time and time again. I definitely agree with that. And as time has gone on, you know, really this fairy theme has almost become sort of the primary theme of Legend of Zelda when you think about it. it's, it's become a tradition for this to be the music in every sort of title screen where you enter your name or load your right, save the menu files. And, stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and so actually it ends up appearing in more games than I would say any other theme. I think um, it's fair. You know, and just in terms of that. Other than the th- overworld, I guess. But maybe I mean, even but more. The, yeah, the overworld wasn't really in Ocarina of mm-hmm. Time, and they are very kind wasn't of careful with it. wasn't in Wind Waker, I don't it. think. That's, that's and true. whenever it is in the games, they always change it so much. Yeah. You know? and, and even though we do hear a lot of these themes come back uh, and they're sort of reiterated, this always has this kind of spotlight position in every game. Right. Um, and yeah, there's just there's something really pleasing about it. And, you know, this is also one of the very first pieces of music that you hear when playing Link to the Past, because it also functions in that that same role in that game in the in the menu select screen. And um, in addition to the intro music, it really lets you know right away just sort of how different the palette is musically of this game compared to the previous games. Sure. And uh, I, I know it always struck me that way growing up that, oh boy, look at what is, first of all, possible on the Super Nintendo, and also look at what this composer is doing like with this extended palette yeah one thing we should say um before we go too much farther today is you guys uh might not know so far but actually we we do have a keyboard in the room with us so for each one of these three pieces we're actually going to be able to utilize that to talk about the the composition and the musical theory so marty why don't you play a couple notes on the keyboard to introduce that sound to people So yeah, we do have the keyboard in front of us. And really the focus on today's episode is really the music that we're showcasing. Um, I I wouldn't say that today is really sort of a performance showcase for the three of us. (laughs) Yeah, we're going to be playing it slowly and with some flubs. Yeah, so please forgive some of the flubs that that you might hear. 
um, as as we're kind of working our way through showing some of this music to you. So yeah, when when we think of the leap from Nintendo to Super Nintendo, uh, I think a lot of us think of the added colors, the different kinds of sounds and instruments that we would hear. And then we also, some of us are aware that uh, we had more channels to work with too. Right. So you could, in theory, have you know, kind of denser chords. You could have kind of a more complicated musical language than was possible on the NES. And really, this fairy fountain theme kind of strikes us as as being that new level of complexity and density and brilliance. But really, it actually could function as just a two-channel piece on the NES. So it's it's kind of nice. It's like in some ways you see Koji's expertise in the sort of minimal two, three-part writing from the Nintendo. But you can see that he's so inspired by the sound of the Super Nintendo instruments mm-hmm. and the ambition of the game that he's really pushing himself to do something that's, I would say, more musically complex than anything we ever saw in the Nintendo output. But before we get too complex, let's just look at the melody itself. And this is actually a piece where all of the individual elements are working together so well that Mm -hmm. we don't necessarily come away just thinking of a specific melody. But if we were to say the piece has a melody, it would probably be this. And for any of you who so got, genius, <laughs> and for any of it, it really is something. And for any of you that got the 25th anniversary Zelda CD, mm-hmm. there was a really wonderful orchestral reimagining of the and piece, oh, and God. it was really one of the first times I was aware of hearing the melody so so bare. Right, um, and I would I I thought it was really effective in that context. And when we look at that melody, uh, we all can probably notice there's some sort of pattern. There's some sort of uh, continuing uh, idea that takes us through the whole piece. Um, so just looking a little bit at maybe another way to sort of talk about that. If we break the piece down into small little chunks uh, in music, we often call them measures. So if we look at the first measure, which is also sort of the first four notes of the main theme of the melody here, we have... And that specific turn of notes is what we continue to hear as the piece moves on, um, with just the pitches being displaced slightly. and then displaced lower again, and so forth. But if we just look at the pair of four notes, and I'm just going to come down the octave here so we're not constantly listening to something that's quite so high in the (laughs) keyboard. If we were to hear this in sort of a faster context, it might start to evoke something that you would encounter in Baroque music. Some of you might notice when you're listening to Baroque music, there will be certain moments where there will be um, a little flash of notes or color, and we call these ornaments. Probably one of the most famous ornaments is a trill, where you're quickly oscillating between adjacent pitches. But actually, uh, Johann Sebastian Bach, he had a table of ornaments 
that are sort of a reference guide to us for Baroque playing. And one of the ornaments he called a cadence. Um, it's sort of a sideways mirrored S symbol. We call it a turn today. And mm. the turn in Baroque music would be something like... Um, and that, that's something that not only was common in Baroque music, but made its way through into classical music and became popular in classical and the Romantic era music. And so what happens is you sort of approach the note from above, then you land on the note, then you um, approach the note from below, and then you resolve again. And in Baroque music, we typically stayed within the key for this ornament, this turn. Um, but then in a lot of classical and then romantic music, we would add little chromatic embellishments. So we would maybe approach from underneath from just a half step. A famous example of that is... And that's a, a famous rondo from Mozart. And clearly in a very different idiom than what we have in the fairy fountain theme, but we can start to see that sort of musical connection. There's something that feels very classic and very, very strong about it. Um, But really, I would say when I walk away from the fairy fountain theme, it's not just the melody in isolation that that wows me. It's really all of these moving pieces. And I almost have the impression that Koji was really thinking about, well, what is what is a fairy? How do I describe a fairy musically? How do I describe the fantastic? And I sort of feel like he's almost evoking some kind of sacred geometry. There's something that feels slightly scientific, but also slightly romantic. Well, I know that was a concept that they talked about a lot in the Baroque, the combination of the mathematical sort of perfect scientific aspect of music, but also sort of the soul, the natural, the divine aspect of music. So I think it's kind of fitting that those two concepts that you were talking about sort of go hand in hand. Yeah, I definitely agree with that assessment. And it, it we really hear it all working together. We hear sort of the complexity that feels almost yeah, again, like this sort of sacred geometry, there's something mm-hmm. sort of magical, almost like mystical about it. But then there is this sort of positive romantic association with those kind of chromatic turns. It reminds us something of almost like a Tchaikovsky, like a... Oh, yeah, for sure. Just where it's like we're kind of swooning and we're swelling. So the idea that the, these fairies have some sort of personality, it's not just sort of, there's, there's something that separates them from the water and the well, trees. Well, when I think about romantic Eric music, the, the number one thing I think about is the use of chromaticism. So for me, the fairy fountain theme is such a romantic piece of music, right. and really in both senses of the word. Yeah, absolutely. I I, I totally agree with that. Well, we'll dig in a little bit here on the sort of specifics of what's going on musically in the piece. Uh, It opens, uh, in some versions of it, it opens with this really lovely intro. It sounds like this. And what's happening there is essentially we're voicing in this very lush, romantic way uh, what's called the dominant chord of the key. For those of you who have a little experience with music theory, it's the five chord. In this case, um, we're in the key of F. And so that would be uh, a C7. And it's actually a C9 chord is what we're hearing. So we're really getting in the intro, at least, the lushness of the Super Nintendo. Well, it really sounds sort kind of, of like a harp, because with a harp, you sort of set 
the pedal for you know the key region or the chord mm-hmm. and then you can just kind of strum infinitely and more and more pitches absolutely. of the chord become illuminated as you play it absolutely and you really get the sense that koji is excited by this harp sound it, you know i sort of wonder if when he thought about musicalizing the fairy was the harp one of the immediate things that came to mind or was it playing with the super nintendo hardware and and the the sounds that they had and playing with the harp sound and just kind of falling in love with it but he he really seems to enjoy it uh here and and it, and it works well in the intro where we get those glisses uh like you're saying right. which are very signature to the harp um but when the piece kicks in sort of what we call it the a section we don't really get a lot of traditional harp glisses we get very right. precise harp plucking and there's a real beauty to that as, as we'll see here so it actually is a little helpful to look at this piece uh, almost the way we would look at a piano piece in terms of there being a left-hand part and a right-hand part. I mentioned earlier that really once the piece kicks off, it's almost a two-voice piece. And what I mean by that is um, essentially there aren't really more than two pitches happening at once. And the Super Nintendo, he doubles some of those pitches and gives them to a a few different instruments right. for adding color and texture. But we'll look at the right hand part uh, initially here. So we really see when, when, you, when we're hearing all of that together, the melody plus this, um, this arpeggio that follows it, um, we're really starting to get almost the bulk of the, the effect of, of this particular piece. And as we're hearing that incessant, arpeggio that sort of feels like some of that sort of sacred geometry from sort of the order in the the universe the kind of scientific aspect of the piece and um our melody note uh sits atop this arpeggio and that chromatic moment really is very striking and Mm -hmm. stands out at when set aside that arpeggio chord so um if I bring in then the left-hand part, um, just in isolation would be this. And so, so beautiful, forth. even on its own. Yeah. So each of these pieces really are beautiful on their own. Um, but it's not a case of haphazardly or by chance throwing together two really nice musical ideas. These are really yeah. designed to function together. And when we hear them together, we also get a sense of harmony and a sense of chord. So let's sort of move on through the piece with that in mind, sort of with a harmony analysis or a chord analysis. So when we look at the first measure, the overall chord that is suggested um, it's a little bit ambiguous because I think some of us might hear a B flat major seven mm-hmm. with an added sixth. So something like this, but really we don't actually end up hearing all of the notes that constitute that chord. And we could also look at it as a G minor chord in first inversion so that we hear the B flat in the bass. And then we have this really, um, lovely decorative melody on top of that. And so forth. And that's 
actually how I would choose to look at the harmony of this piece. It's really this, uh, I would say it's a, like a G minor nine, if you want to bring the melody into the analysis, um, in this first inversion. And when we hear that melody and bass uh, against each other, there's really an effective relationship that, that is happening there. And I would say if, if we do consider this to be G minor, we can see sort of how striking that is in this inversion relative to if it would be in what we'd call root position, which is how triads are, we normally encounter them. So a root position of G minor would sound something like this. Not only does it sort of um, emphasize the sad nature of the minor triad, but this relationship between the melody and the bass uh, it's not it's not quite as satisfying as it could be because it's it's fairly dissonant to start off yeah. right off the bat. It's this ninth, and then we have this unison, and actually, you might be surprised, but a lot of times when we hear those unison. Um, which means like the same pitch in the melody and the bass, sometimes it can almost make the harmony feel like it disappears for a second. So then we'd have that unison moment followed by uh, another fairly dissonant moment. But in this inversion, when we have this pitch in the bass, the B flat in the bass, um, you'll notice the relationship between the bass and the melody is much more effective. Right. Each of those pitches really works. Um, well, and it creates a unique harmony for each moment of the melody. Absolutely. Impact. So it's like moment to moment, you're really being affected in a new way each time. And by the fact that you're not in this root position, you're almost not sort of like settled in this base of minor harmony. And also it, it lightens and kind of makes the mood a little bit more ambiguous. It's like, is it minor? Is it major? Um, am I am I feeling happy right now? Am I sad? And that I feel like helps to evoke the fairy, the sort of otherness. Also, it's like, is this a good thing? Is this a scary thing? I know what you how mean. do I, how do I feel? It's like a bunch of emotions all you know packed into one. Yeah, absolutely. And so essentially, we take this harmony. Um, this is a G minor in first inversion, or you could say G minor over B flat which you could say is like your minor two chord in first right. inversion. And then what happens is we move, um, if we're following our, our bass note here, we move that down to um, the nearest note in our key, which here is an A natural. And we continue this inverted voicing. So we went from this inverted uh, minor two chord and now we go into this inverted major one chord. We're descending down. And again, the relationship between the bass and the melody is interesting and moving at every single at every single moment. Then when you continue to descend down and and we get to a slightly different chord here, um, it's actually a dominant seven chord. Um, in this case, it's a C seven chord, and this is in second inversion. So, second so far, inversion probably is... the most beautiful chord, I would say, so far. Something about when it gets to that third chord, it just always gets me. So when we're talking about inversions, um, 
most of the chords that we encounter in music are what we call triads. They consist of three notes. That's a C major triad. And we typically hear that in uh, what we call root position. Um, those are all root position. We all have a, there's a clear communication of the character of this major chord. But if, if the lowest note that we end up hearing in the harmony um, is one of the other chord tones, we start to, to get a, a different effect. And so when the lowest note or our bass note is no longer the, the first note or the root note in our triad, we have an inversion. And if the bass note has then moved to the second chord tone, that's the first possible change, so we call that the first inversion. And then there would be a second inversion. And each of these have their own sort of character, and they're not at the same level of sort of stasis or repose as the, as the root position. We'll try not to get too complicated. One of the challenging things when we're talking about music theory is we end up having to use numbers to describe the phenomena so often, and we actually a lot of times have running in parallel different number systems that we're talking about that can get really confusing because we can say like, oh, well, this is the two chord or well, this is the the five chord, but it's a five set. Well, what is the, and it's like, oh, but this is a five, you know, dominant seven and this mm -hmm. is a four major seven. Well, what are we talking about? Like, oh, well, the seven actually refers to this and the four right. refers to that. It can get a little convoluted. So yeah, it can get a little bit convoluted. So we'll try to sort of stay... <laughs> stay above the fray here but yeah do uh do hit us up on twitter if you're kind of interested in these concepts or in learning anything more about it or, or diving in a little bit deeper um so to kind of return where we were there's the sense of descending harmonically and really there's so much comfort i feel like in that in that descending cuz right. we're descending but there's what we call smooth voice leading which means that the individual notes in the chords as the chord changes they move in a very minimal way so there's nothing too abrasive or jarring and really koji's voice leading here is is quite beautiful and and, it's, and all contributing to what's so comforting about the piece i think that's one of the things that really makes him such a master is so many video game composers particularly i would say on 8-bit and 16-bit consoles really kind of throw the concept of smooth voice leading out the window i think partially right. because of the nature of the limitations so they'll have really kind of awkward parts that have to jump all over the place right <laughs> Right, but I think the thing that I've always which, loved about... Which, by the way, I mean, we love that. That's, right, that's totally. a beautiful moment, but that's a, it's a, just a different well, musical expression. I think it's one of the things that makes Koji really feel like he's a master from a different era or something, because there right. is something uniquely classic about his music, and I think classic to us just as listeners, because the melodies are so good, but also in sort of the sophistication of the arrangements and the part writing and everything. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Um We've kind of worked halfway through the piece um, harmonically, and then the second half of the piece, we sort of end up working in the other direction, or at least that's the feeling that we end up getting when we're listening to it. In the first half, we're sort of moving downwards, and the second half, we get this feeling that we're moving upwards. But it's not 
just a sort of a rote uh, mechanical moving upwards. And as we'll see, there's actually a little bit more going on than just a, a sort of straight up or down motion. So at the halfway point, um, we get the sense that we're almost sort of repeating. And we do start by essentially repeating uh, what we heard at the beginning of the A section. And then here he introduces, um, I would say, probably the most striking unexpected chord of the piece. So we move from to really striking there. Um, so harmonically what's happening, this really extended um, sort of jazzy chord, but it doesn't feel extremely jazzy in this context. What we get is an altered chord that's uh, a dominant on, on D. So it's actually a D7 with a flat 9. Something that we hear in, all, in, pretty in darn jazz jazzy, musical. Yeah. yeah, pretty darn jazzy. There's a lot of dissonance here, and it has one of the most dissonant intervals in all of music, which is the minor 9th. If we just hear the minor 9th bare by itself, it sounds like this. So yeah, even to our progressive 21st century ears, it's it's it sounds like something is wrong. It sounds like right. there's a wrong note. Well, and I think a good point to be made is that um, oftentimes when you're spelling out chords or voicings of chords, you choose an inversion that avoids spelling out the minor nine. So true. So yeah, we essentially have this uh, D7 with a flat nine, but with our winding melody with its kind of chromatic um, lower neighbors, we end up getting really complex with this. So it starts with a B flat above all of that. And it's uh, voiced with an A in the bass. So we have... So it's almost like an augmented uh, D7 flat nine. Although the natural fifth is in the bass, we'll just kind crazy. of speed ahead here. But you can just see, like, even in trying to describe it, just how complicated it can end up getting. And we get a little bit of resolution in that moment, and then some more tension. And at this moment of tension, he moves the bass to be in the root of the chord. Which has a nice sense of motion, and it's helping us to kind of process the dissonance a little bit. Well, I think the other thing is that this is all being arpeggiated, so you're not hearing all those pitches simultaneously exactly. at once. They're being really? spread out through um, so horizontal motion. So let's just hear motion. it being played, the very ending chord progression, one more time, just being played how it is in the track. Sure. So in that in that context, uh, yeah, exactly like you're saying, Will, it really it kind of unfolds it at a pace that we can really process it. And also, we've just been hearing the the arpeggio has been so true and sort of consistent and faithful that we almost kind of trust it and it's become this comforting thing. And so we kind of continue to get comforted by it here. And then the final chords, we kind of turn from that complexity of this uh, D7 flat nine sound um, to a more sort of secure minor two sound. But our melody, you know, continues to kind of add la layers of complexity to it. And then finally, we're back to our penultimate chord, 
the five seven chord or C seven chord. Which leads perfectly, obviously, back to the beginning. And then we're back to we're back to square one. Really, such a master of creating that satisfying loop that that really doesn't. This piece doesn't have a concrete ending. You know, you just want to listen to it forever. It's so satisfying. And what's nice is, uh, I would say it's probably one of the most enduring. You know, short loops, kind of in the tradition of early video games. That's still kind of a major part of our kind of video game musical lexicon. Right. Um, and it can even pop in in a cutscene in a Zelda game um, and kind of work its way in and out. It, it's it's really sort of endlessly satisfying. Right. And I think that's sort of another reason why I imagine it sort of sits at the menu screen in every Zelda game because you can really leave the console running. I, I can't imagine ever tiring of this piece well, of music. Because I think from both a harmonic and a melodic standpoint, um, all the forces are sort of converging to make it really feel uh, cyclical and like it wraps back into itself. So there's really not a moment that you can check out and disengage and want to stop listening to it. Yeah. So that's our deep dive into the Fairy Fountain theme. Again, uh, feel free to hit us up on Twitter if you have any sort of more questions or, uh, uh, or maybe that was too much for you. You know, you can tell us, hey, don't dive so deep. So now I think with that, we're going to move on to the second piece we'll be talking about today. And this is a piece that I'm going to be um, kind of taking the reins on. This is going to yes. be a piece from Sonic the Hedgehog 2. And there we go. We just made the change. So now I'm in a different microphone. And I am in front of the wonderful keyboard right now. Hopefully you guys uh, didn't even notice that. So yeah, the track that I'm going to be breaking down and analyzing today is one of my favorites. It's Aquatic Ruin Zone from Sonic 2, composed by the wonderful Masato Nakamura. And we're going to play it in a second, but the only thing I want to say before we play it is it really is one of the most economical and immediately engaging tracks in the 16-bit era that I think was ever composed. So with that said, let's take a listen to Aquatic Ruin Zone. That is just the best. That was Aquatic Ruin Zone, composed by Masato Nakamura. Uh, and yeah, that just is such an awesome piece of music. Uh, so before I kind of break break the piece down and kind of get into the nitty gritty, what I think is so effective about that track is you have to think about you're coming from Chemical Plant Zone, which let's just talk about the level. It's this industrial plant. The music is kind of techno. It's very Western, like pop music, right? So coming from that... Moving into this, you needed to establish that this is a completely different landscape. It's a completely different part of the world. It's almost like you're going back in time to these ancient ruins, right? Totally. So well, that was, was actually the original, I think, concept for yeah. the game was a sort of time travel sort of Absolutely. thing. Absolutely. So you need to establish that musically, and specifically in the introduction of this piece, he just brilliantly established some of those uh, a little bit cliche ethnic elements, but he never goes too far with them because the piece isn't only this Aztec ruins song. 
song. It's it's a combination of those ethnic and tribal elements mixed with um, more kind of modern jazz Latin elements. And the combination of those two together is what makes it feel like Masato. It makes it feel like Sonic because it feels hip at the end totally. of the day. So wow, yeah. so uh, the first thing I'll do is we'll kind of talk about each section. So the first thing you're, you're going to hear, and actually with this piece, since it is on the Genesis, after I do some of the breakdown on the piano, we are going to play the individual channels, the FM channels, and kind of talk about the interaction there. So the first thing um, is the intro section. And, and the bass is very simple. It's these long droning notes. So it starts off in D minor, and the bass is playing this. So that's the base for the intro. And then you have uh, one of the other things that I love is you have this uh, Latin kind of almost, and this this is very common throughout the entire piece, almost this Montuno pattern that a, a piano player would play in a Latin ensemble. So the intro uh, piano pattern is this. Which is already... It's so great. Cool. Like you That's don't awesome. need anything else. It's so wonderful. Uh, on top of that, you have the actual melody of the introduction, uh, and that is this. Now, technically, that little response line are in di- are in different channels. So the melody is actually just. That's really all we have uh, for the introduction melody. And what's so wonderful about that is it's kind of dark and mysterious. And and right off the bat, it's giving you the sense of like, ooh, where am I now? Like, this is such a different right. location than, than I just left chemical plant zone. So so having, you know, we're in D minor, but having having the melody, the melody starts on the one, on the D, and it's going up to the D, E, F, an A kind of reminds me a little bit of the Batman theme in some ways. Sure. Um, but having all of those tones, this is the chord that would have been played if you combine all those tones together. Uh, kind of a D minor nine type of a sound. So it's a very dark, um, a little bit mysterious, uh, but not too not too mysterious. It's still engaging because of the. So there's that kind of groovy um, rhythmic sense that's really underneath the entire track. So he never goes too far, but yeah, melodically it's a little bit it's a little bit uh, kind of tension filled in the beginning. So that's pretty much all we have in the intro, and then we'll talk about this on the FM channels. But there's also a delay track that plays the exact melody, but it's shifted a little bit for delay. So that's the intro, and then what I love about the A section of this piece is it completely goes in a direction that you're not expecting. Uh, and it's hard to go back to a time when maybe you heard it for the first time because sure. it feels like it's just always existed. But if you really do break the piece down and think about where it could have gone, he completely turns it. For the A section, it starts on a different on a different feel. So the A section is a lot more like optimistic and beautiful than the intro would lead you to believe. So, so what we have in the A section is we have this. And that just that start is just so beautiful to me. That yeah, kind of reminds gorgeous. me of some old standard, something out of the real book. It just feels uh, classical, jazzy. It just feels timeless to me. Um, and what I love about that, and we'll talk about the chord progression as we go. The chord progression starts off. Um, so, like I said in the intro, we're in D minor, and right away, once we go to that A, we switch to the relative major. So we're kind of hearing that we're in F major at this point because we have the the G minor 7 to the C major 
to the F. So you could think of that as a 2-5-1, uh, which is all over jazz music and, and classical music uh, for that matter. So really uh, what we're hearing is we're hearing a tone center of F. So again, the first three chords you have is... And again, the melody is... And what, what I love about this track is, I, and I said before, it's so economical. It's only a 40-second loop, and, and what he's able to get in those 40 seconds is absolutely incredible. So you have those first three chords, and it's very pleasing, it's very positive, but then he, again, changes it on a dime, and he adds more spice right in there, because that fourth chord is, is a really surprising choice. It's really what it is. It's, it's a secondary dominant chord in, in musical theory sense. That's how you would describe the next chord. And basically what a secondary dominant is, is it's a chord that, first of all, is not in the key. So if we're in F, the next chord that he goes to is an A7. That's not in the key of F, but it's it's a dominant of another key. So, so with in the A7, oftentimes when we talk about a dominant of a dominant, that's sort of like it's functioning as uh, the five chord in another key. In a new key, yeah. Uh, so it's functioning really as the five chord into what would be D major because that's that uh, A is the five of D, uh, and it's it's a little bit different than a modulation because it's only these two chords. It's this A seven followed by the D. And if it was any longer than that, we would consider it a modulation, but because it's just those two chords, really, you think of it as a secondary dominant, uh, so a five of six, followed by, um, some people would call this um, a tonicized chord. So now we're hearing, we're kind of in the tone center of D, but then we go right back to that, to that F tonal center right away. So again, here's, here's the chord progression of the A section. Just beautiful. Um, so, so here's the entire melody of the A section. So again, it's very beautiful. It feels classical. It feels a little bit jazzy, and it also feels authentic melodically uh, to Latin music. Uh, a lot That's of totally melodies nice. you would hear uh, in, a, in a Latin piece of music. So again, what I think is so effective about that is you starting off on a very simple chord progression but then going to that a7 leading into the d major it's a it's a hopeful kind of um just triumphant feeling but then he doesn't stay in it too long then it goes right back into the progression again he doesn't waste any time and then he does the same thing again the a7 back to the d and that leads us into the b you know, section. something that's so effective is what you're describing the a section to me as a listener just seems like a natural next step it's like i've never really thought about the form of this piece before because you know it's interesting that you mentioned it's a 40 mm -hmm. second loop because it just really moves along because it, it goes in so i think of it so it just seems like yeah. it's continuing on. The intro is like two measures. The A section's like four measures. But it's I think what I mean is like it doesn't feel like you have two random bars and then it stops right. and then you have the A section. Yeah, so before we move on to the B, let's talk about uh, one other element uh, of the A section. We'll kind of go in sections. It probably makes sense. Maybe my favorite part of the A section is actually uh, the piano ostinato or the montuno pattern that, again, if it was in a Latin group, you'd hear the piano player probably playing in octaves, you know. If it was an actual Latin track, there'd probably be more chromaticism, you know. I mean, I'm not a very good like Latin pianist, but it's a little it's a little too uh, cutesy for an actual Latin sure. uh, track. But it, it's still very very authentic. So here is the um, the Montuno pattern of the A section.
that's just brilliant. It's so ah, well crafted. So um, and, and one of the things I love about this track is, although the melody I think is wonderful, all of the elements coming together, the, that little Montuno pattern, the bass line, the drum part, the drum set part, um, the other uh, harmonies, all of it coming together, the arrangement is so uh, well done and so authentic to the style that uh, that's really what makes this piece so enjoyable to listen to. So that's pretty much the A section. Then we move on to the B section, uh, and this is this is how the B section sounds. The melody goes down the octave from here. Um, then it goes down to um, this kind of lower octave. So here's the melody uh, of the final, I guess you could say, the, the B section of this of this piece. And what's great about that is he's ending it with a D minor, which leads perfectly into, again, the intro. And it's the first time we hear the D minor ever since the intro, because every other time we were hearing the D major. So finally hearing that D minor is, is a very powerful moment. And here's actually how he voices that chord. It's actually a D minor 9 chord. Very striking. And we'll get into that a little bit later. But yeah, so that B section, the chord progression, is, is very similar to the A, but it's slightly different. So we have G minor. Not G minor seven this time, just G minor, F, uh, and then again we have that um, that A seven to D, and he does that twice. So that's the chord progression, uh, and then the second time it's it's the D minor instead of the the major. Uh, what I particularly love about this section is, like I said, the melody goes down the to a lower octave, as opposed to. And, and so it, that already feels almost like an instrument switch, like maybe like a, a sax would take over or, or something like that. But what's so great about this section, it's not necessarily that this melody is too out there. It's how it's harmonized. So the melody is a little bit interesting because if you, if you take the first chord, G minor, the melody is starting on a C. So it's starting on almost this kind of sad, tragic note. Uh, and again, if you were to play all the notes at once, it would sound like this. Uh, he's not starting on a chord that's a note that's in the chord, so he's going, and then he's doing the same thing for the F. He's he's starting it on the B flat, so he's playing with that suspension and that and that sense of um, tension and release is really what this section is all about. There's so much momentum. Yeah, but then he doesn't keep that up for this chord. He keeps it on uh, one of the chord tones because at this point we've heard this chord enough and we need a little bit of strength at this point. Well, uh, the other so thing then that's he... effective is that sort of follows the sequence that's happening. Exactly. Da 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 da. It's really it, nice. How sequence that works. is wonderful, but it also fits because if we were to have to have a, yet another moment where um, it's not in the court. It would be a little bit too heavy-handed, in well, my also opinion. Also, it's more smooth, because mm -hmm. it, it's able to sort of move down consistently each so, so, so we have the... Followed by my favorite part in the whole track. That, that triplet no line. Oh and that's something gosh. that is reminds me of big band music. Oh, uh, let's God, say you'll yeah. have a melody. Dun, 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 bah, 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 that like really big harmonized brassy well, Especially sound. when you get like sort of all the players to do it and, together. And it's that's what really happens. Cool. All the players, you know, virtual players in this song are playing that exact rhythm at the same time. It's like the whole salsa band and is really. That like, is one moment. There's many moments in this piece where you're just like, 
yes, this is this piece is just uh, just crafted. It's just rocking. It's firing on all cylinders. So that's a wonderful uh, part. So getting back to what's unique about this section is how it's harmonized. So in addition to this, we have uh, two harmony lines above the melody. So right off the bat, they're higher up, so they're very striking. And there are some people that might consider this to be the melody of this part. There might be some people that could, would consider the melody because it is higher up. It, it, I don't think it is, but in any case, it's also a wonderfully composed line. But the way that it works with the melody is very interesting because it's having um, a counter motion, in parallel motion to the melody. So the melody's going, and this line's going, and when you put them together, it's kind of uh, dissonant. Not necessarily that pleasing, and, and I do think that was an intentional choice, especially when, when you talk about the other harmony underneath that. So you have this, and then you have this. So that's the second harmony line you have, and these are a fourth apart, which again goes back to that slightly tribal feeling. Uh, if you remember the intro, we have... And then we have, at the same time as, and when you play those together, you have, which that kind of open fourth sound really feels, for a, letter, for a better word, you know, for lack of a better term, tribal. So he's coming back to that, uh, that type of a harmony, that type of open harmonic sense at the very end of the piece with the, specifically in the start of it with these three notes. And if you play that with the melody, this is what you have. Pretty out there, pr pretty yeah. wild stuff. Um, but again, it's combined with the um, with the in the very right. kind and of that's rhythmic giving you sort groove. of a huge and, and, sense of what the chord yeah, really so, is. Yeah. So so again, he never goes too far with the tribal element. He never goes too far with the Latin element. It's it's this great combination of both. Uh, and and the last thing I want to talk about is really the bass. So what's great about Masato, it should be said that Masato Nakamura is a bass player, so he was very acutely aware of um, all these different um, styles of music and playing an authentic bass line to these styles. So so in the A section, the bass line is doing a tumbao pattern, and the actual uh, particular type of a tumbao that he's playing is called a, a bombo panche tumbao. And what that is, is that it kind of has elements of reggae as far as... Um, a really popular reggae pattern is called the drop one pattern as far as what the drums and what the bassist is playing. And what that means is that you're not playing any of the downbeats. You're not playing anything on the one. Um, so here's what, here's what the bass is playing uh, in the beginning, in the A section of Aquatic Ruin Zone. So, so if you're counting, it's one, two, three, four, one, one, one. So, so he's not ever playing anything on the one, and everything is kind of over the bar. And that sense of over the bar, across the, the, the bar, is what gives uh, this type of Latin music, specifically mambo and salsa, that type of a dance ability. And, and that is incredibly authentic here in Aquatic Runes, and it's exactly what you'd hear in a mambo track. Yeah, there's so much lift. It's like you really just take off. I mean, it's particularly impressive to hear that on a you know 16-bit console. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know those quarter note triplets, like there's really bona fide 
uh, Latin rhythms. It's just, you kind of forget that you're listening to any kind of chip-based music. Yeah, so now let's take a listen to the actual channels and kind of and close our, our talking about this track uh, while playing the actual FM channels here. So starting off with the bass line, kind of what I was talking about, that tumbao pattern, uh, let's take a listen to that. So obviously for the intro, you're having that droning uh, bass, which again is so contrasting to the other section. So now let's take a listen to that pattern I was talking about. There's nothing on the one. It's just super authentic to Latin music. And then here's the melody with the delay channel. Here's just the delay. And it's a entirely different instrument. Mm-hmm. And it's panned differently, too. So those are the that's the melody and the delay. And, so and, good. And another thing that's great about that B section is, if you notice there, the bass pattern changes again. So it goes from the boom, 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 to the... Uh, Boom, 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 for that final section. So right, it's a right. little bit more driving to kind of give you it a kind little of bit heightens more the energy intensity. There. And here's my favorite thing. The noise channel is doing the 2-3 clave, son clave Oh my gosh, I never pattern. thought that was the um, noise. Wow. That's, that's what the clave player would be playing in a Latin ensemble. We can't forget the drums. The drum set part. This is a drum set, obviously. Uh, and, you know, Latin music originally started before the popularity of the drum set. But uh, when you're talking about more modern Latin music, uh, a lot of the times it's going to be a drum set player and maybe a conga player and a tum- and, and Well, the a other thing cal- is the drum set player. is the sonic, the hedgehog mm-hmm. sound. Absolutely. Right. So, again, authenticity here. Uh, this part was written by Masataka Nakamura, and it's, it's a mambo drum part. It's matching all of the moments that the bass is hitting. Every single bass note is coupled with a kick drum. But on top of that, he has these little elements of the snare um, just before and just after some of the bass notes, uh, which, again, is incredibly authentic. It's exactly what I would do if I was playing this piece on a drum set. It's exactly uh, the type of beat I would play. Uh, and then here's here's a little hint of some of the really cool PSG ostinatos you have. And then the counter lines are, are, are so great, too. And this is that section I was talking about with the interesting Those harmony. Fourths. Yeah. And that Just last fits like chord, a glove. yeah, wow. and again, that last chord that I was talking about. What's interesting about that is, in some ways, it, it's a D minor nine chord because uh, you have the D, you have the F, you have the A, and multiple octaves. But one of the PSG channels is actually playing an E in in this very striking register. So it technically is uh, a D minor nine chord, but it's not voiced in a very pleasing jazzy way. It's voiced in a way that's trying to get your attention. It's just one of those classic Masada cadences that, that he uses all over these games. So that's just a wonderful track. Man, so good. Yeah, you know, it, there's so many things here that you're shining a light on that I, I never really noticed. Like for instance, like the, the Tom sample mm-hmm. in the drums. Is that something that pops up a lot on Sonic 2? It is. It's all over Sonic 2, yeah. But it's, wow. it's used almost more in this track than it and you also have the clap the hand clap right which is hilarious that well, is there's just also so something about his music used. that is sort of specific i remember on the last time we did a breakdown analysis we looked at marble zone mm-hmm. and uh that and this both share sort of a similar little pattern where you get that unison 
and then this time it's just dead right. end. Yeah. But it, it's that really kind of powerful moment where all the harmony cuts out and you just get the unison sort of stabs. And right. I think that's something he really kind of likes those big, powerful yeah, and, moments. And, and so that's what's interesting is a track like this, you might think, oh, it's just this kind of simple Genesis Latin track. How much can you say about it? But I could honestly go on for twice the length about that track. It, oh, it means sure. a lot to me, but I think for the sake of time, let's move on to our third and final track of, of the day. This is one that Will prepared. Yeah, so I'm really excited about this one. I'm going to be playing and talking about Rosalina's Comet Observatory from Super Mario Galaxy. Uh, there's a number of reasons why I chose this one to be the one that I wanted to break down and analyze. Um, one of the reasons is just that I love the melody. It's one of my favorite tracks from one of my favorite soundtracks written by one of my favorite composers, Koji Kondo. <laughs> and Another reason, though, is that I wanted to do an orchestral track, and oftentimes in modern video game music, we notice how uh, the music can layer and different elements, in particular in orchestration, can sort of build up and multiply. But this is one where I thought it, it, it achieved that in an interesting effect. If you've played the game, you're probably familiar with how it works, but it might also be a little bit subtle at times. There's three separate versions of this track, each with entirely different orchestrations. And contrary to what I thought before I started, you know, really digging into this, I kind of thought it was all sort of the pieces layered on top of one another. Sure. But in reality, it's entirely separate orchestration. So in this first iteration, performances yeah, yeah, in the first iteration that we're going to hear, none of the elements from it are going to be retained onto the subsequent version. So I thought that was something that I found particularly interesting. Just a little background on the piece. It's a waltz. And a waltz means that it's um, a piece that's in 3-4 time. 3-4, that's the time signature. So if any of you have played music, you probably know what I'm talking about. But if you don't, Marty described the word measure before, and that's essentially... Uh, a measure is sort of like a word. Um, I think of the notes as sort of like letters, and each measure is just sort of uh, a small chunk that we can break the music up into. A lot of music is in... Um a duple time or quadruple time in 4-4, four, four, which means that you get four beats. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. And that's how we divide the music. Um, but waltzes are in 3-4 time, which means they go one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. Um, it's, it's very classic, and a waltz really, to me, has this very romantic sensibility to me. I think of composers like Tchaikovsky and Johann Strauss. So I think that's what uh, Koji was really trying to channel totally, for this one. Yeah. I think a, an example in video games of a really classic waltz is the Super Mario Brothers underwater theme. So with that in mind, let's take a listen to the first iteration of the melody, Rosalina's Comet Observatory.
beautiful. So right off the bat, if you're familiar with this track and if you've played this game, by listening to it, you're probably surprised at how sparse this initial version is. And I think it actually leads to one of my favorite experiences when playing this game, which is that when the full orchestrated version comes in, it's this moment Mm -hmm. of like, oh my gosh, I didn't even realize that's what this piece was. But it's interesting how sparse this is. A A little side note to you guys, to prepare for this episode, I actually transcribed all three versions of Rosalina's Comet um, and notated them so I could have some sheet music to look at. And it's kind of interesting. This one, there's a very few number of instruments. For the most part, it's vibraphone and cello performing the melody. Uh, There's also harp in the B section, and there's occasional harp glisses, and there's also flute. The vibraphone is doubled with this sort of uh, synth pad. It's a very bright, spacey sound. I had forgotten about that sound until we started listening here. I really like it, and I think it's a great effect for the first time you hear this melody, because another thing that really struck me, there's no chords in this first arrangement. It's just melody and bass, and it highlights, I think, one of the most powerful effects of this piece, which is that both the bass line and the melody are incredibly expressive and descriptive of what the chord progression is. Just like so many awesome Koji tracks. You Absolutely. Know? I think the particular instrument choice was great because you have solo cello, which is really expressive, and here it's doing sort of a molto vibrato thing, which is very beautiful. The other thing is the vibraphone is a very sustained instrument, so after every attack, you can really hear the sustain of it. And since the melody to this piece very much outlines a chord progression it's a it's an effective way of almost having chords while just using that one instrument and doubled with the pad that synth pad has sort of a similar chord or something i want to play through for you though just the melody and bass line just to show you how darn powerful the combinations of just those two parts are for creating the effect of the chord progression Absolutely. It's amazing. I was only ever playing two notes at once, except for that last chord. Mm -hmm. But you really get the emotional effect of the entire piece. Nothing is missing. And this is a guy who made some of his best music in the 8 bit era when he only had two or three voices at once. Right. You know, and it's interesting because Marty started off playing the Fairy Fountain theme, which is a very sort of simple yet complex piece of music. And to me, this fits in a similar category. The sort of rhythmic impulse and the orchestration and everything feels very natural and effortless. But when you actually look at the melody, it's incredibly specific and I think it's fitting that the waltz is a dance, but it's a very dancey melody. And I mean that as far as the interval jumps. Let's take a look at it. This track starts on a D major chord. Uh, The piece is actually in D. It does have this intro that goes something like this. So essentially what's really interesting about that is that we just sort of have a droning A being played by the cello in the bass, and then we have this harmonized line in the vibraphone. The interesting effect is that it's really trying to emphasize a dominant chord, the A major chord, which is the five of D major, which is the key of this piece. But what's kind of interesting is this harmonized line 
almost rarely impacts the notes in an A major chord. It does start with the third and fifth of the chord being a C sharp and an E, but it just moves up in parallel thirds. It's interesting because it's very simple, but the harmonic implications of it are rather complex. And I think it's a wonderful little moment. I think it's great. And it really does sort of help to it's a simple little intro that emphasizes the dominant to lead you into the one. But the the main melody of this track, I think, is just absolutely beautiful and more complicated than you'd think, considering how singable it is. So we start on this D major. But the melody starts on the third, and it goes from the third to the fifth, and then it jumps up to the third an octave higher. So right off the bat, we're outlining that D major chord. And it's a very attractive, compelling a series of notes that is going to be sort of used a little bit later on too. And so it sort of sounds like we've changed chords, but really what's happened is just the bass has ascended and changed its position. So no longer is the bass in root position. We're still in a D major chord, but the bass has moved from a D up to the third of the chord, F sharp. And it really has, that's another thing I wanted to talk about, the power of inversion and the power of the bass note combined with the melody that's really where you get the harmonic implications because it's really not changing if you were to analyze this it's not necessarily changing chords from a scalar standpoint so we have and when it goes down to that note that briefly creates the effect of a major seven but it doesn't really function that way to our ears because it's sort of a passing tone, but it can't really be analyzed in the way because it's not passing down. It's sort of, it's leapt into and then it's leapt out of. So it's interesting because it really is creating the sound of a major seven, but it moves so quickly that our ears don't necessarily yeah. hear it as such. And then here we have a note that's outside of the chord. Sort we of have that E. So yeah, it jumps down. It is an appoggiatura, but what's interesting and is... And you the want to quickly explain for someone who doesn't know uh, where an appoggiatura is. That's another is. sort of uh, ornament like we were talking about before right. with, the, with, with the turn where we're just sort of approaching the note. And I guess you could look at all three of these notes as kind of an extended yeah. ornament sort yeah. of like you're approaching from right. below... Uh, half step and, and then and above made a, and then landing Will made a good point D. about these leaps and really in my mind what is uh, so great about this piece is the leaps. Where does he choose to leap to? Uh, these chromatic moments uh, that they might be like a fifth or a sixth away from the previous note um, but they're just so beautiful. So for me this piece, the melody is really all about where does he well, leap to? And that's to? what's so interesting about this piece is it is very chromatic. It has little moments of chromaticism but to me when I think of sort of a chromatic romantic thing, usually the notes are connected I think of you know the sleeping beauty waltz sure where th there's a lot of chromatic running that's happening in there but they're very connected da, da, na, 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 na. The, the notes are all connected they're not really leaping in this way that we have Where the, it the notes, the, mind. The, the notes of chromaticism are almost never a step apart. It's almost They're always really jumping into a note of chromaticism and jumping out of it. And that is something that is so novel about this track. Yeah. I haven't heard it in a piece of classical music. Not saying it, it hasn't ever been done. I just can't. It's like for, a sort of my, early Disney. Yeah, like for, the, yeah. for the life of me, I can't think of another example that is so. So it's effective. interesting. We have that moment of major seven. Where it 
jumps down with the appoggiatura. And then here we have another note of chromaticism. But it also sort of has harmonic function, as we'll hear in a later iteration. And the melody does that beautiful ah, jump down, gorgeous. which ends up becoming a huge hook of uh, the next section of the piece. What's interesting, oh, though, gosh. is the melody is hitting, you know, there's some melodies, particularly of Koji's, that sort of live outside the chord structure. So they maintain independence, and the chords are happening around the melody. But this is the piece where the melody is sort of traveling to every sort of crucial note mm -hmm. of every single chord and also right. exploring certain elements of chromaticism. Well, Will, do you want to talk a little bit more about some of the orchestral elements uh, that come in the final two sections? Yeah, absolutely. So as we already heard, this was a very simple orchestration. In the B section we get to um, that has that wonderful melody. Classic Koji lullaby affair. It, but it's just, you know, melody and bass, but it implies so much chord. So what I'm excited for is this next iteration, the second movement, it really amps things up. We're working with a full orchestra now, not really including brass. It's mostly strings and woodwinds, but we'll talk about it after we take a listen. This is Rosalina's Comet 2. So right off the bat, this is so lovely, and we're dealing, like I said, with a much larger orchestra here. I think some of the biggest innovations musically, just as far as the piece, are the addition of all those counter melodies. I'm mainly talking about and then the other thing that's great is now we have the addition of some octave doubling. Before when we were listening to the piece, what the flute was doing, it was playing in unison with the vibraphone when it came in, but now when the flute enters, it's an octave above what the violin melody is doing. I'm going to look at the score here for a second to talk about some of the orchestral techniques. So when we start off the bat, um, we have the strings that are doing the same thing from before. That's exactly what the vibraphone was doing. And we still have the flute in its upper register doing the... But now it's also coupled with the clarinet, a sixth below, doing this. So that's a way to constantly emphasize that A major dominant chord sensibility of sure. it. And now also the harp in this one, it still does those kind of glissy runs, but now it's also playing chords. So we have the harp um, playing out our A major chord. And it, it continues to do that triad, throughout yeah. the form of the piece, doing sort of quick arpeggiated chords. Uh, the, the cello is still holding that droning note, but now it's no longer solo. Now it's the entire section. 
When we get into the melody, the melody which before was being played by vibraphone is now being played by the first violins or possibly a combination of the first and second violins. And what's great is now that we're dealing with a full orchestra, we get to move to a more conventional orchestral waltz pattern where before the bass was really sustained and was doing this sort of figure. Now it's doing these short stabs that are in octaves with the bass and cello, which is a very kind of traditional style of orchestrating, treating the bass and cello sort of as one instrument. Um, but what's great is you separate the bass note from the chord tone. So we have this. That kind of effect. Classic waltz. And the chords are being... And it's just the, the, a pair of two notes together, and it really works well against the bass. That kind of a thing. Um, so like I said, the basses um, with the double basses and the cellos, and these chords are actually a combination of woodwinds, the oboe and the clarinets, and it's also doubled with pizzicato strings, uh, the violins and violas doing pizzicato. So the melody is just being played on just the violins in one octave, and but now we're, we're broadening the, the range of the piece. So now that we've included the double basses, that bass register is really being fulfilled more, and now that the flute is in the upper octave when it enters, we're dealing with the really high register. So our soundscape is being filled out very nicely as we proceed to the piece and like I mentioned before we have the addition of some of those counter melodies which help to sort of flesh out the harmonic landscape but another thing that I find interesting not a lot of there's not a lot more chord information the chord information that is there it's emphasizing that part in the melody so what was a chromatic note before, seemingly, is now actually part of the progression because the chord voices are bouncing awesome. up to it before the next moment. So it's, we're really not getting much more information. It's just that the orchestration is so much more fleshed out. I think a really interesting thing about this second movement is how the bridge section is treated. I talked to you before about how sparse it is, but in every single iteration of this piece, it's very sparse. Here, what we have, instead of having this moving bass line down... Now what we have is we have very quiet tremolo strings and we have a melody that's being done with first violins and harp. So it's this interesting instrument combination. It's very sweet, it's very pleasing, and very quiet tremolo strings. And then we have clarinet in a higher octave. Before we had the cello moving down here, but now we have the clarinet up here doing the descending thing and that's in the same register that it's we have really the strings. Nice color. So it's really nice because like I said we've broadened the horizon. The highs are higher, the lows are lower as far as the bass register but now for this B section it really condenses into exclusively the treble range so we have this. And now we get a little bit of a mm -hmm. run there. So not only does that clarinet function as a bass, it also has a little bit of contrapuntal function, and it, it sort of works as oh, a little so counter true. melody. I well, so love that B section. Uh, musically, it, it feels uh, quite a bit more modern than the rest yeah. of the piece. It's like we're kind of brought into the late 20th or 21st totally. century. And that's why it feels almost more quintessential Koji to me, because Koji is in the modern era, well, right? You and know, so 80s, true. 90s, 2000s. And then, and then the orchestration, too, really brings... I, I mean, I remember the first 
first time playing the game and hearing those tremolo strings, I was just so moved. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah. boy, am I playing a video game? <laughs> well, well, should we so talk visibly. about how it further kind of fleshes things out in the third iteration? Sure, why don't we? Let's take a listen to Rosalina's Comet Observatory 3. This is just wonderful. This is really sort of the true promise of a Mario romantic waltz. I mean, it's really hard for me to pick whether I prefer this or the Super Mario Brothers one. And also for me, it's hard to for me to say which iteration I prefer. Right. Uh, Obviously, I would say it would either be two or three because you get more real performance. But But there's something intimate and beautiful about two, and three um, is very exciting and probably the most beautiful and lush right well i think the other thing i'm glad that they all exist because the thing is two isn't quite satisfying enough but three is maybe a little bit eccentric (laughs) because it introduces even more counter melodies one of my favorite things is we talked about the different functions of the flute in this iteration the flute now is playing a really high counter melody because we have And now we have a moment of counterpoint. Yada, da, 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 da. And so the flute is introducing some of those chromatic tones mm-hmm. and the leading tone and everything. It's, it's really rather wonderful. It's one of my favorite things about this iteration. To talk about some things that make it contrasting, in all the other versions that we've heard of this, it's be, the intro has been in this register. And it's just that pair of harmonized thirds. But in this iteration, it really does something nice and different. It gives that sort of line to the French horns. And now, instead of being harmonized in thirds, it's harmonized in sixths. And it's actually different notes entirely. It's not just an inversion of it. Which you may not notice when you're playing it because it feels so natural, but it's another thing that sort of helps differentiate this version harmonically. Now, Will, the main melody, um, how is that orchestrated in the third iteration in order to make it even bigger and even more lush versus the second? That's a good question. Something that's interesting, like I mentioned in the second one, um, some of the strings are being occupied giving chord information by doing uh, those, Those those pizzicato strings, and then we have the bass and cello. In this iteration, it begins with the first four groups of the string orchestra, first and second violins, violas and cellos, doubling the melody in two octaves. So we have the violins on the octave, the original octave, and then we also have the violas and cellos an octave lower. And it really, just right off the bat, gives it a little bit of a fuller sound. So before, in the last track, we introduced the octaves after the first run-through of the melody. And now we begin with the octaves, and we actually get an even higher octave when the flute performs that piccolo. In the last term that it might be nice to explain, if for some reason someone doesn't know what an octave is, do you want to quickly explain to someone who might not know what is an octave? So that's a good question. Marty used the word unison before. Unison is essentially when... uh, two instruments or two voices are playing the same pitch at the same time. Mm -hmm. 
an octave, think about it as a unison that's spread out. So it's the same note, it's the same scale, the same pitch, but it's actually spread out. So if we play through a chromatic scale, I have to play through 12 notes until I return to the note so that they're an octave. So that's the sound of an octave. That's You're not an getting octave. any. Awesome. chord information um so yeah we we do get a fuller sound right off the bat the chords now because this iteration of this theme introduces the brass so now we have trombones french horns and trumpets um which are always play a very tasteful function the trumpets and horns are doing a very sort of quiet um and they're, they're actually doubled still with those woodwinds that we heard earlier the last That's thing that i really want to talk about is again that bridge section which is so lovely the way that it functions here is similar we do have those tremolo strings except now it's a little bit more spread out we include the cello in the mix of tremolos and it's returning to do its descending mm -hmm. function of before in the the tremolos are actually a little bit louder and now before when the clarinet was doing that descending line now it's playing this delightful little counterpoint this counter melody I love so have yeah. so pretty beautiful yeah what i love about all three iterations is the bridge section is so contrasting maybe most contrasting in the third iteration because right. you have such this epic lush sound but they always strip it down right. for the bridge section and it's very powerful i think the other thing is that this version finally has percussion the only percussion that's there is that suspended symbol right but it really makes the loud moments da, 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 da. it's really a powerful effect when all the players are really kind of going to their full capacity so what i love about this one you get the full sort of 50 piece orchestra is there that timpani they paid for. in the third iteration there's too? no timpani yeah. in any of the iterations so the only percussion that happens is cymbal the last mm -hmm. thing i want to mention about um it's something that you get in all the pieces it's sort of the form i talked a little bit about it before you have the intro which is just a short few bar thing and then you get that a melody And then it repeats that, and it, it completes its form, and then we repeat it again. And it goes through the whole thing. And then after that's done, we get our B section. That part there, and that eventually ends with... leads us back into right but what's interesting is for me also my memory of it is i kind of thought that was the intro of the piece mm -hmm, i thought sure. that leads you back but that's like an entirely it's almost different like an end. set of music it's yeah. just repeating it the just sort of the intro. this sort of motive of the ascending harmonized pair but it's different and then this iteration of the melody only happens once and then we go back to the very introduction What's so great about this, it has this nice little bit of asymmetricality, which to me helps disguise the loop. You know, if right after the B section, it, w it went straight into the intro, I feel like your ears would be able to notice it. Where with this, right. it kind of feels like the piece is continuing. And then after you have this one iteration of the A melody again, then it goes back and does the whole thing again. It's, it's one of my just favorite enough of a reprieve to, yeah. to really keep you engaged. That's, that's so true. Wow. Yeah, that's I, wonderful. I just, I don't know. I, I find this melody to be incredibly timeless and it's like simple and complicated all at once
Well, guys, thanks so much for joining us as we took this interesting, very in-depth look at three of our favorite pieces in video games. This was Breakdown and Analysis Volume 2. Marty, thanks so much for joining us for this adventure. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Boy, this was a total blast. Yeah, this is a really good change of pace. Hopefully you guys enjoyed this. I know there might be some of you that um, maybe got a little bored <laughs> by this, and it's understandable. This is a really long episode. We really threw a lot of terms at you, but hopefully you uh, enjoyed this. The opportunity to maybe learn more about music theory and about some of the things we, we throw around this podcast all the time yeah and definitely don't be shy uh hitting us up on uh twitter or you know and uh, per- yeah if you, i guess if you run into us in person <laughs> you do that too hopefully you guys enjoyed this we had a great time stick around next week we have the finale of our season seven so we're so excited for that yeah it's gonna be a really exciting episode one thing i wanted to mention if any of you are sort of orchestra buffs or fans of orchestra music and you like super mario galaxy i'm totally willing to share i made sort of a, a transcription of uh the whole rosalina's comet all three variations so if anybody's curious to see what i came up with i can't promise that yeah. it's absolutely perfect well, it's to pretty what close. Yeah. very well done i think it's for sure i think it's as close as you're gonna get just from listening by ear awesome well thanks so much guys once again my name is carl brueggemann and i'm his brother will brueggemann And I'm the brother Marty Brueggemann. (laughs) Have a great week, everybody. Peace out. See ya. (laughs) 